Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkinsliff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at Funkinstuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify. As always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. Hey there, I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership singer, producer, composer, arranger, Jay King, the mastermind behind the success of the Timex Social Club and Club Nouveau. He promoted the former's 1986 smash, Rumors, into the biggest independently released single of all time. Well, that same year, the latter's debut album went top five R&B, top ten pop, and was certified multi-platinum. That record, Life, Love, and Pain, contained the Grammy-winning Bill Withers remake, Lean On Me, as well as the top 10 R&B hits, Jealousy, Situation Number 9, and Why You Treat Me So Bad. The group went on to release five more albums, the most recent in 2015, and two years later, King released his second solo album, in addition to being a recording artist, King has worked in numerous capacities in the music and entertainment industry, including record companies, artist management, publishing books on the business, online radio networks, and hosting his own radio shows. Jay King, welcome to the show again. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Welcome to you, sir. Thank you for having me. Hey, where are you coming to us from today? I'm in Sacramento, California. All right. Northern Cal. State capital. Yeah. I bet it's hot up there this time of year. It is very hot, but I'm in the house, so I don't feel it. It's a lot of, I'm air conditioned at this point. Yeah, I got to be up there. I know it's hot there. Um, 
So is that uh, where you're from or, or how long have you been up there? Uh, yeah, I grew up here in Sacramento and Vallejo. I grew up in Northern California, but my main residence is in Los Angeles and I'm San Fernando Valley, Florida Ranch. I gotcha. So how are you doing this year in general? It's a crazy uh, year we're having, crazy time. You look to be in good health. I'm very glad to see that. Yes, sir. Well, you know, um, I get up every morning and walk a mile and a half, and at night I walk a mile and a half. I, you know, I'm 58. I'm not the young man I used to be. So you got to really, you know, especially if we, you know we continue to tour, we continue to do dates. Me, Valerie, Samuel, and um, uh, you know, you got to be in good shape when you're on that stage. And folks don't care about how old you are. If you're on the stage, they want you to sound good, and they want you to look good. So we um, work on both. Sounds like a good regimen. <laughs> I've been trying to do that too with the lockdown, you know, just try to, cause you know, you want to be uh, fit also in case, you know, that virus comes knocking. So that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, let's uh, go back a ways and uh, find out how it all started for you. If that's okay. Fine. Uh, let's go back before, you know, the music I mentioned and, you know, how did uh, Jay King get associated with music in the first place? And what was sort of the path that led to, you know, the, the Timex Social Club? Well, you know, music was in my house always, whether at my mother's house or my father's house. They were both music lovers. So, you know, I grew up during the era of the Jackson 5. So, you know, every black family was trying to make a Jackson 5, right? So, you know, so, you know, you're, you know I was a good dancer. I played trumpet um, in junior high school and high school. Um, and you know, interesting thing about life is if you if you're available to it, anything can happen. I just think I was just available to the ideas. I never stopped dreaming or believing or uh, that um, something great could happen in my life. And if I told you that I planned it out and I had this pathway and I knew exactly what I was going to do and it ended up happening that way, I'd be telling you an out and out lie. It was all luck happenstance, good fortune, and blessings. Um, I was a rapper living in Alaska. I was in the Air Force for a year, got kicked out, stayed in Alaska, uh, started a dance group. Rap started being the thing that everybody did. Uh, I was uh, involved in arts in Alaska, brought function to Alaska, made a relationship with Michael Cooper, who was the lead singer and producer. He produced the first rap records that me and a partner of mine did out of Alaska. We called ourselves Frost. How, how did the and ice get broken with him in the first place? You know, when you when you bring in a group to Alaska, you know, first of all, Confunction was from Vallejo, so I grew up in Vallejo. So I'm a fan, you know, I'm a fan of the group. Uh, and so here I am now, you know, um, Confunction has all these hit records and then they stop having hit records. It's interesting you know, what a group would do, where they'll go to work. Um, and so I brought them to Alaska. And it wasn't very expensive for the group that I thought they were. It was pretty reasonable. Uh, that didn't make any money, but I did make a relationship with Michael Cooper. Hmm. Wow, Alaska. I bet there wasn't a whole lot of rappers up there. It was not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but rap music, I brought... Um, I brought Run DMC to Alaska as well uh, when they had his like that. And Leor Cohen was their manager at the time. 
rust. It was just Rush Entertainment. It wasn't even a record label yet. So Lior Cohen was a road manager for uh, 1982. I bring uh, is when I bring them to Alaska. 82, 83. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so from there, um, I met the Time Social Club through a guy named um, uh, uh, guy. I can't remember his last name is Thompson. Daryl, Daryl Thompson. His brother Marcus Thompson is a part of these guys that have this song, this idea called Rumors. And Daryl brings me in, I produce it and do it on my own label, J Records. And at the time I'm writing songs for Confunction as well. And it just kind of snowballed from there. You know, Rumors uh, did what it did, you know. Um, part of it was luck, part of it was God. You know, I just remember praying to God one day and telling him, if this is not what I'm supposed to do, please take this desire out of my heart because it was killing me. You know, I'm a non-drinker, non-smoker, non-drugger, non-clubber. So I was I didn't have those vices, but I loved music. And um, I was married at the time and I was selling everything that we owned to put these records out. And my wife thought I was crazy. And, you know, I was for music. And so we ended up obviously divorcing. Um, and, you know, not because of drug use, but because of my love of music. Mm. Did, did you think that Rumors uh, would be a hit like it became? Yes. I said I was going to sell a million records. People laughed at me. They made fun of me. Um, I used to go to clubs and the DJ would say, ladies and gentlemen, Jay King is in the club tonight. I'd give the DJ 40 or $50 and he'd make the announcement. In 1986, $50 is a lot of money, mm-hmm. you know, for a club DJ. And he'd, you know, I'd make a relationship with the club manager. And he'd say, um, Jay King is in the club. He got his record rumors by the time it's social club. You can't buy it at any record store. You won't see it on any radio station, but you, he's here tonight selling rumors. Try to have exact change is three dollars and fifty cents, and they play my record, you know, and, and um, I, I I would sell a few records, but then I start bringing girls to the club with me, and then I'd sell a lot more records because girls, for some reason, sell records, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's how I started. You know, at that time I was uh, a DJ in Los Angeles, and I was part of the uh, Resource Impact Record Pool. And I remember. I remember I remember that coming in. I'll never forget it, you know, and how it took off and, you know, playing it early on and just watching its meteoric rise because it was, you know, real grassroots, kind of low key at first. And then it kind of blew yeah. up is how I remember it. Yes, it did. It was. But, it, you know, but, you know, I released it in February. So you all, by the time you guys are getting it, it's May, June, when you guys start to really make it happen. But if it ain't for the club DJ, the uh, you know it doesn't happen because radio wants it to. It help it happens because of folks like you. You all forced radio. We didn't have mix shows at that time. That was pre mix shows. And I just remember being in um, Dallas, Texas, and um, I met a, a club jock who started playing it. And I had 1,100 records with me, and I sold them in three days. And um, Terry Avery, I came back to California with the money I had made. 
And Terry Avery, who was the program director at K, KKDA in Dallas, she said, um, is Jay King in? Because I had my phone number on the back of the 12 inch. I said, this is Jay King. She said, this is T Terry Avery uh, from KKDA in Dallas. I want you to tell your friends to stop calling our radio station. We're going to play your record. I said, ma'am, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, do you have a service calling my radio station? I said, no, ma'am. She said, are your friends calling my radio station? I said, no, ma'am. She said, where are you? I said, I'm in California. She said, you don't have anybody calling my radio station. I said, no, ma'am. Said, she said, if you're not telling me a lie, you're going to have a hit record. Every time I play your record, my phone lines go down. And that's when I knew that I was in for a great run. Wow, that had to be just so exciting and just pump so much adrenaline through you at the time. And wow. Well, you know, it really didn't. It was hard work. So I'm one of those artists that didn't get the pleasure of hearing this record on the, on the radio for the first time and screaming and being excited because um, the work was so difficult that, you know, um, and, and, and if I had to do it over again, I, I would rather be the artist that gets to enjoy hearing your record on the radio for the first time. Because doing the work like that, uh, it takes a lot of the love out of um, the business side. You know, it was very, very hard work. And uh, a lot of, um, a lot of shenanigans that you have to be concerned about. People are funny. Money's interesting. And what it makes people do is even more interesting. Yeah. I tried my hand at uh, independent record promotion myself briefly in the late 80s, uh, the company called American Mixed Media. And so I kind of know it was it was hard, even though we got like, um, you know, uh, the local news to do an item on it because it was, it was topical. It was uh, touched on the theme of like, you know, safe sex and that kind of thing. And it was such a, you know, scare with AIDS back then and all that. But it was danceable. And we got on the news and did all these things. And it's still, you know, was such an uphill battle. It was amazing. Yeah. And so it's not, it's not music that makes a record hit. It's money. So you could have the greatest record in the world. If you don't have any money, it doesn't matter. Um, and so, you know, that's the one part that I didn't like. And what part I don't like now, and I think... I listen to music. I try to discover new artists because I love music. I love to this day. I love music. I love all music. So I listen to everything. I discovered Anderson Pock because he was on Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live one day, and I'd never heard of him. And he did this song called Tent, um, "Tents," and um, I and I went and downloaded the album that night because I was asleep and I heard it. I just woke up, downloaded it. Then the next day I went and bought all of I mean, not even the next day, it was a month or so later, I went and stopped buying all of his stuff and just fell in love with him, you know. Um, yeah, like Snow Allegra. Too. Yeah, Snow Allegra, the same thing. You know, I love the key day. So I think, um, you know, when you can discover music, it's a, you know, it's wonderful. It's, um, it's refreshing. With uh, with rumors, though, that was uh, with the involvement of uh, Denzel Foster and Thomas McElroy, very talented guys. Um, yes. What can you tell me about them and working with them? What were they like as talent and also guys? 
Well, what was great about me and Denny and Tommy and our partnership is that we all did something different. So we were like a, a, a we were like a big puzzle together. Denny was really a groove master. Uh, he could really find a groove, and he and he always was interesting with drums. Tommy was um, the the middle field, all of that 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 middle interest, uh, very uh, avant-garde was 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 Thomas, and you know, and I was the um, the melody and the lyric and you know and the, and, the, and the song. So together we really had a great we had a great marriage um, of sorts, you know. But I was only one boss, and so that's where you know we, you know, and we were all young, and so as leadership. Um, I think I, I, I didn't do a very good job at keeping us together, keeping the wolves out, because what happens is when you start having that kind of success, people always are pulling at somebody to try to separate you. And, um, and I, I wasn't versed enough in our business to understand that that's what it was. Neither, none of us were. I think as we look back now, we all kind of say, yeah, you know, you know we should, number one, we should have stayed together. Um, and number two, we, uh, you know, we should have um, been better prepared for the um, shark infested waters we were in. Yeah. I, lo I love those guys, talented, talented guys. Um, you know, um, can't, nothing I can say. It's why you don't see an unsung on Club Nouveau. There's no, there's no story. Me, Valerie and Samuel continue to tour. We, we still love Benny and Tommy and it, it would be a, a nothing burger. You know, if you're looking for the controversy, it just wouldn't exist. Yeah. No, well here we're looking for the music and, and the stories about that, not the controversy, but um, tell, tell me um, Jay about the transition from Timex Social Club to Club Nouveau. Mm -hmm. So, you know, me, Denny and Tommy were not, guys who wanted to be in a band. So there was always just conflict for us in that respect. You know, you're doing a, you're in a band because you have to be, not because you want to be, because the band that you were just working with has gone and signed a deal with someone else because, again, this is the inexperience of me, um, not understanding what a, that you got to have a contract in place, that friendships don't matter, that people can say we're together, but it doesn't mean anything. Those type of things don't stand up in the court of law, you know. Just because you fill out a, a, a writer's for, um, the form for BMI to say that you're the publisher and they're the writers and you guys have this deal doesn't make it so if there's no contract. And so, because uh, again, my neglect and, and and ignorance as a business person, because again, we're new to this. These guys left us, so we got we have to form a group to put this music out that we've started working on with this group, Timex Social Club. And so Valerie, who I put in Timex Social Club, had not yet recorded with the group, but she was with me. She was my little sister. So she stayed with me. So me, Denny, and Tommy, and Valerie found a vocalist, and we, we found a vocalist through um, Denny, knowing Samuel, brought him in. We loved, I loved the way he sounded. And we, so we wrote Jealousy purposely to sound like rumors so people could say, you know, 
this is the group. These are the guys that made this. And so jealousy, we wrote about them. So when I wrote jealousy, the lyric, and I said, I can't tell you how these things continue to happen to me, but some people get so jealous of the smallest of all things. I tried to help some friends to help themselves to get their lives intact. They came out spreading rumors. Now I have to come out spreading facts. All that was about the time at Social Club. And that's what started off the, the, the train, so to speak. And, um, and so we're out on the road touring at the Timex Social Club, at the Timex Social Club without trying to put dates together as well, because we're still battling over what we're going to call this group. And we put out situation that where we just plan, we're playing situation number nine on stage while we're doing rumors as well. And we know that situation number nine is going to be a hit just by the way the audience is responding. They're singing song with us by the time we get to the second verse. And so we're doing rumors, jealousy, situation number nine. And it was just an incredible time for us. And that's how it all started. That's where it all began. Yeah, I remember it seemed like, you know, a beef kind of like, you know, L Cool J and Kumo D or something like that, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, fun as an outsider, you know. You know, it, and, and to be honest with you, we weren't even paying attention to it. You know, we were, you know, those were great times. Those, those are our first touring years. So they're really fun and it's exciting. You know, we're, we're young guys who did not plan on being in a band. You know, we're writers and producers and all of a sudden we're in a band, you know, we're in a group and we're, and we're doing dates. And, you know, so now we have to, you know, that now, you know, now you got to put a show together and it's just a whole bunch of stuff. And, and at that time, you know, the world of touring was still a fantasy world. It was still very cool, you know. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of drug dealers that are doing, that, that are concert promoters. So they, so they got all this money. So you're playing these beautiful venues. You got all these people showing up. So it was, it was a, a great time from, from that respect. But, you know, it was also dangerous, you know. If you, and that's why, you know, we were very, um, uh, very, I was very strict. So if we came off stage, we would go back to our rooms and you know, get ready, go to bed so we can go to the next show. How many pieces were in the band? Interesting. There's, there's a total of six of us. Me, Valerie, and Samuel singing. Denny and Tommy on keyboards. Dave Agent on bass and guitar. And Denny and Tommy playing drums using drum machines. SB-12, uh, 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 808. Um, Lynn, we've got all these drum machines on stage, no drummer, so it's six of us, and then we have three techs. So there's a total of nine people that are traveling plus a security guy. So that's 10 and then a bus driver. So how did you get uh, signed to Warner Brothers and, and tell us what went into making that full album? Well, so, you know, um, I'm going to release Jealousy independently. I'm recording it to release it independently. Benny Medina uh, has left Motown Records and is now going to Warner Brothers. And he's a new A&R guy. Um, I've made so much noise uh, on Billboard and throughout the industry that people are reaching out for me. So Larkin Arnold's office reaches out for me. Um, Jerry Griffith reaches out for me. Um, Lil Silas, and all these guys that are reaching out for me, you know, they're they're the big shots, you know, and I have to go to them, and 
Jerry Heller and um, Maury Alexander, they, they're the managers. They want to, you know, they want to control. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to let anybody manage me. I'm going to manage myself. And so all these things are happening. And this guy named Benny Medina calls me and says, can I fly out to see you? So I'm in Alameda working on some other songs. And Benny Medina comes out to Alameda and he says, I want to sign you. But I heard you're not going to sign to a major. I said, I'm not. And he said, why? I said, because majors are full of shit. Nobody's, you know, you know, nobody's going to do right by the artist. And Benny, Benny said, if I, um, if you sign the Warner Brothers, and you bring me a hit record, I'll make sure it's a hit. I'll do everything I can. And, um, and um, he said, and I said, I, I want my own label. He said, you give me a hit record, you can have your own label. And that's how it started. Benny Medina really was a lot more inventive and um, a lot more convincing than the other guys. I mean, I, I later find out, you know, ben, Benny Medina is what I call a Hollywood friend. And so Hollywood friends are your friends as long as you're hot in Hollywood. When you're not hot in Hollywood, they're not necessarily your friends. It's just your Hollywood friends. But Benny was the reason why Club Nouveau was able to be successful. I, I, I have to give him a lot of, a lot of uh, credit. Mm -hmm. So you already had a lot of tracks uh, heading in. Uh, how did you finish it up? And, um, you know, really, it's the, that was the first album that from A to Z, you really were responsible for, right? Yeah. 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 And, you know, we pretty much, we, we had seven songs and then we took Lean On Me and made the pump it up version to make it eight songs. You know, we, we, we pretty much knew what we were doing already. And um, we, you know, we had it, had it together. So it was just, you know, motion, just getting it done. And, um, and Benny Medina helped us get it done. So Lean On Me was but the, it wasn't the lead single, right? Those other ones were, so. Lean up, so it was Jealousy, and then Situation Number Nine. And then we, um, actually Warner Brothers was calling us to make start making the next album. We were going to start, we were at about 380,000 albums, and Warner Brothers was like, you know, let, you know what, we'll get to the next album and, you know, and just keep the momentum going. Um, but Lean On Me, started in the pop, on the pop side. Lean on me, uh, Russ, uh, Russ Direct said, this is a hit record. And they went after it on pop. So Lean on me entered the pop charts at number 39 and the R&B charts at number 80 and became a massive hit. Yeah, it was a sensation. It was incredible. Yeah. And that's what really took us through the stratosphere. <laughs> How did your life change, uh, you know, most substantially from that? Well, financial freedom. You know, all of a sudden, you know, you have a voice in an industry where, you know, you were nobody. Now you're somebody to everybody. I tell people all the time, um, I've never been high before, so I don't know what it feels like to be high, but if it feels anything like 
being successful, you know, the ego of the mug. And when you have success like that and you're young, you, know, you, you can piss in the middle of the road and with, with, your, with everything out and people are gonna say, oh, he's a genius. <laughs> Nobody's gonna say, hey, you got everything out in the middle of the road. So um, it was just a great time. You know, it was just incredible. It was, it was magical. It was, um, and you know, and and it was at the golden age. It really was the golden age of recording. The last to me of the great years of what the recording business probably was. How many millions did the album and that single end up selling? Uh, in the United States, two million, two and a half million, and then in the rest of the world. World did another million and a half. Um, single, the single did a million, four million five. It was a platinum single, a gold single, because back then you had to sell two million singles to be platinum. Yeah. It was a few years later. See, if 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 when we first made records, all of our singles would have been gold, but because none of them sold more than a million, except Lean On Me, all of them sold seven hundred, eight hundred thousand. Lean On Me was the only one sold a million. Um, that's the only gold single we had, but it would have been platinum single had it been in uh, you know, the 90s business. So it sold a lot you, of records. How did you arrive at doing that song in the first place? And did you have to get rights from Bill Withers or, or, or was he cognizant of it? Or When a song is recorded, once it's recorded, anybody can record it. You can't stop them. You just have to pay them a royalty based on today's rate. So if you did My Girl by The Temptations, it was recorded in the 60s. Publishing was only a penny back then. So if you record it today, you pay at the publishing rate of today at the full rate. They're not gonna give you a three quarter rate or discount. They're gonna make you pay at the full rate. So once a song is recorded, anybody can record it. You can't stop them. They just have to get a compulsory license to do it. Um, Denny, it was really Denny's idea to um, to do the song, but we we had to find out a, we had to find the right way to do it, and that was the difficult part: figuring out how to do it. What is the right rhythm? You know, so that's where we had a issue. But once we found it, you know, and you don't know if you got a hit record. You don't know what that is. You know, we didn't know if any of this stuff would be a hit. We didn't know what would happen. You know, we listened to a lot of music and we were influenced by a lot of it from the ABC band to uh, uh, Tears for Fears, you know, and and uh, Rock Me Amadeus by Falco. I mean, we listened to a lot of different music, um, Denny and I. Did you ever get any uh, feedback from Bill Withers? Absolutely, Bill. Um, you know, when, you know, well, he because you asked me if he knew. Yeah, he knew we were doing it because my lawyer was friends with his um, publisher. And so they gave us the song at the three-quarter rate because of the relationship that my lawyer at the time, Richard Lair, had with um, his publisher, which is Sussex, which is um, uh, the godfather, Taboo Records. Um, you know who I'm talking about. Clarence Avant. So, so he was aware of it. And actually, he sent me a telegram when it went to number one. And then um, one day me and Bill were talking and he said, I just want to say thank you because uh, 
you built a wing onto my house and sent my, sent my kids to college. <laughs> That's very cool. Especially we just lost him not too long ago. So rest in peace, Bill Weathers. Yes, yes, he was a wonderful man. Wonderful, wonderful man. Um, so you're going out on tour, you're doing TV shows, you did the Grammys. Uh, what was it like to, to win a Grammy? Well, you know, it was what's interesting is that the, 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 the Grammy that we won was a year that R&B music wasn't broadcast live, so they just showed our picture. Yeah. <laughs> and it was in New York. So that was that sucked, but it was great to win a Grammy. You know, it was great. That's when it really, to me, it really meant something. I'm not saying it doesn't mean anything now, and it's just not the same kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's it's like um, I don't know if Grammys have the same prestige. Prestige. I don't know if, if, and I don't know if I'm saying that because I'm older and music has changed so much, and it's more um, about you know computers and electronics than it is about you know. Plasma and playing. I don't know if just the old dude talking now, but um, I, you know, I love music that feel like something. that got a vibration on it, and that's um, and that's got plasma running through it. So, did you get to go to the event, or you just didn't go? Yeah, no, we went. Okay. We went. We went to the Grammys. As a yeah. matter of fact, that's when I first met Little Richard, and he liked my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Told my dad he had big hands. <laughs> Speaking of another legend we just recently lost. Um, so being on Warner Brothers, did you get to meet any of their stars? Like, did you cross paths with Prince at all? You know what? Prince was very cool to me. Um, Billy uh, would always, whenever Prince played in town, they would also make always make sure that we had tickets. That I had I never got a chance to meet Prince uh, myself, but you know, um, but everybody else, you know, the Isleys, Ronald Isley was there at the time when I was there. George Harrison was there. I got a chance to meet George Harrison when he was there. Very cool, you know, to meet one of the Beatles. Um, Shaka Khan, Al Jarreau, George Clinton, you know, um, I was in one of George's videos. So you got a chance to meet a little bit of everybody. I Jimmy went, Jam I, and Terry Lewis. I went and hung out with, at, at those Burbank offices uh, a few yes. times. So, yeah. For uh, Ronald Isley and for George Clinton and people like that. Yeah. 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 I used to go there all the time and just hang out and sit with Benny, go to the office, do whatever work I needed to do. They used to let me have an office and I'd get in and out. You know, it was cool. So you guys were like on sort of the leading edge of what eventually became called New Jack Swing, you know? Yes. Um, you know, that blending of like hip hop elements and beats with R&B. Um, did you realize you were kind of at the forefront of a, of a new sort of genre or subgenre at that time? Well, we knew that we were marrying old um, R&B ideas with new hip hop elements with the drums and stuff. And we used to say we were the last of the old school and the first of the new school. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw our counterparts um, to what we were doing as full force. They were doing on the East Coast what we were doing on the West Coast. 
and you know we were experimenting with drum machines and sounds and and you know and um, and just things that we you know listening to pop records like the ABC band Tell Me Tell Me How to Be a Millionaire and just listen to the drum beats and the you know and just the, the, some of the um some of, some of the uh, keyboard patches they were using. You know, um, shout, shout, let it all out. Doom, doom, kaka, doom, 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 ka, doom, doom, kaka, doom. So listening to that drum beat and incorporating that and in why you treat me so bad. Not exactly the same, but a lot of similarity. So when you got to why you treat me, doom, 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 ka, doom, doom, kaka, doom. Why you treat me so bad? And then pulling out and going to the 808 drum machine. So we knew we were doing some really interesting things with drums and, you know, with technology. Yeah. Well, and those things made it very mix friendly too for the club jocks. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the next record, uh, Jay came out 88, listen to the message. Um, yeah. Much more, very different, much more, I would say, overall more ambitious, trying to get, you know, certain messages across and things like that. What was uh, going on with you and the group at, at that time? At this point, now I don't care about selling records. Now I want to say what I want to say. And that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to say, whether you like it or not, I'm going to start making message records. And I remember one day talking to um, Mo Austin, and Mo Austin is the chairman of the board of Warner Brothers. And Mo is, um, he calls me and he's telling me that, um, that, you know, I need to make another record like the first album. That he, you know, he's just giving me his opinion. I think, you know, he said, I know you have creative control, but, you know, I think you should kind of stay in the formula of what you did the first album. And I said, why? And he said, because it worked. I said, I'm not, I want to do anything that works. I want to say what I want to say. So he, um, we go back and forth a little bit. And I said, did you read my contract? And he said, yeah. I said, okay. So that was that. I, I made what I wanted to make. I said what I wanted to say. Um, Sun City was a big deal for me. What was happening there. Um, and, the, um, and the part of it was selfishness on my side part, because I never took into account Valerie or Samuel, what they would think or anybody else. I just wanted to say what I wanted to say. And I felt like now I'm going to, I don't have to make a hit record. I already made one. Now I'm going to say everything I want to say as a, um, as a black man, um, as a revolutionary. And so dancing to be free stop it now and look at me you've chained me down let me be free took my life broke my soul my family's been bought and sold nelson mandela has fought for me equality in society why is it that you bring us pain america you let remain bigotry is still intact supporting it as a matter of fact open up so the world can see that we are dancing dancing to be free dancing hard can't you see i'm dancing now and to be free from bigotry, from hurt and pain, from the fact that slavery still remains. It was about South Africa. It was about, you know, Nelson Mandela was still in, 
in prison and here I am in the United States. I'm not free. I, I face the same racism and bigotries that Nelson Mandela faces every day. Um, I, I'm not loved in this country. You know, I've, I've been brutalized as much as you can be in these Americas. And so I want people to know. So, so from there, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I've done since. And I, I make it a point to say what I want to say, whether people like it or not. I'm not trying to make hit records. I made hit records. I can go work on those hit records. But I get to speak and say what I want to say the way I want to say it. Yeah. Well, when it gets embraced, it must be even more fulfilling. Um, Absolutely. You know. Yeah. But, you know, and, and that is the um, that's the risk you take, you know, because it has to be in, in order for it to be embraced. The record company has to embrace it. And so naturally, I'm battling with the chairman of the board of my record company. If the record don't take off on its own, there's not going to be a lot of support for that record. And it wasn't. But if you listen to Club Nouveau albums, you'll see that I never broke away from that, from, from the, you know, uh, under Nouveau groove, listen to the message. I mean, um, everything is black, a new beginning, the new album, Consciousness. The next album is called The Gospel, which is really the truth. The, the the good word, you know, it's not a, a gospel record, but it's called the gospel as in, you know, the truth of, of of what we are, you know. I wanted to mention, Jay, on um, Listen to the Message, that album, two of my favorites, musically at least, um, was For the Love of Francis and Envious. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was, was Francis an actual person that... Francis was... Uh, um, a guy named Tony Dwayne brought the concept to me. And I was watching a, um, a special on um, one of the late night news channels, you know, um, and it was on prostitution. And um, this girl, she was, a, she was a cheerleader. She was all American girl. And um, she got caught up and the life, and she went to Hollywood. She's from middle America, Nebraska, someplace like that. Came to Hollywood to make her life. And, um, you know, and, and it didn't end up good for her. And um, at the end of the story, the reporter said, if you could say anything to your daughter, what would you say to her? And the mother looked right in the camera and she said, just come home, come on home. And so I wrote, life started like any other girl. Folks thought she'd be the queen of the world. 15 years, 16 years thought she was grown. Packed all of her things and she left home. Put all her dreams in one suitcase. If she was looking for wrong, she was in the right place. A few years passed before it hit. Found face down in life's cold pit for the love of a girl named Frances. Bad luck, no hope, lost chances. She left in the dead of a winter. No one can quite remember. For the love of a girl named Frances. Took her life and did it in. Finally used up all of her chances. Time's up for the girl named Frances. And then, you know, you could hear her in the other room making love for her money every afternoon. They gave her diamonds, they gave her pearls. And it's just, you know, just the story of, um, of how I saw Francis. Yeah, so 
something like that, how quickly do lyrics typically come to you? Lyrics are funny. You know, right now I'm in the middle of writing a soulful bossa nova song for my bossa nova album. And, um, but I'm the president of the California Black Chamber. And um, I do radio five days a week in the morning. And then I do an afternoon radio show from, from on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I sit on the police commission. And um, if you look, if you know anything about Bossa Nova music, it's beautiful. It's it's free. It's flowing. It's love. So you got to push through all the muck and the mire to get to it. So lyrics sometimes come if your life isn't cluttered up. If you don't have anything going on, then it, sometimes it takes a minute. During that time, um, those songs just came to me. It was just a powerful time for me, but it was because I was really, that's where I was. Um, I was in that mode of saying something. Every record that I made, I wanted it to say something. Uh, and, um, and it was also a time when me and Denny and Tommy were fighting. And that's where envious comes from. Mm. Started out as friends. Now you say, I did you wrong. I remember when we were bo broke and friendship was so strong. Did our hopes and dreams and did what said could not be done. Now you're envious. The hate you own has got you on the run. You smile in my face like everything is oh so cool. I've been fair to you while in your hearts you've been oh so cruel. Family and friends blinded you to every fact. I was there for you and helped you get to where you're at. You're so envious, spreading rumors all the time. You're so envious, jealous in your heart and mind. You're so envious, always trying to make right wrong. You're so envious, you should have helped me write the song. You know, um, and you know, it just, where I was with them. How'd they react at that time? Never. That's the thing I love most about Denny and Tommy is whatever they said, I'm sure they said in their circle, but nobody heard much about us because we didn't talk much about it. You know, um, I'm sure in our camps, people had their say, but it was never, I'm, you know, I'm sure they didn't like it, but I never heard much from them and they never heard much from me. Hmm. Were you um, keeping a close eye on what they went on to with the other production success they had and things like that? Well, you can't help but keep a close eye because it's in front of your face. They had great success with, um, with In Vogue, but they also had great misses with uh, every other record. So, you know. Well, their record, like I, I was surprised, uh, flopped, but I thought it was a pretty strong record actually. Well, they had, it wasn't just them, they had five records that flopped, five different other groups. <clears throat> but, um, I th but I could tell you where I thought they could have done better with songwriting. I think that's where they missed me, you know, where um, I could have helped them, you know, crafting of the song, the, making sure the production is tight, staying out, not making it just about a groove. Sometimes then you get so groove heavy that you, you miss the song in the production and, and making it, you know, the flow from one thing to the next. Um, in their record, I think what happened was it was just all over the place and it needed to be brought together so it could have a rhythm to how it would move. Not that you couldn't have hip hop and all the other elements to it, but you, the way you do it, the way you weave it in and out, I think I would have been better for them. Yeah, I think they also, of course, Tony, Tony, Tony. Yeah, well, Tony, Tony, Tony was already, we, we were all working together. So Tony, Tony, Tony was going to happen no matter what. It didn't have that, 
you know, Denny and Tommy just had the deal. And, uh, you know, they had the, it was their deal. And that's why, you know, after the first album, they were out. 